already know I wanna be free. wanna be free I wanna be free. wanna be free Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Liberty Chats, a podcast from the Steamboat Institute. My name is Christina Eastman, and I'm a member of the Emerging Leaders Council, a leadership program out of the Institute. And I'm so excited to be here today. My guest is John Yu, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. And Professor Yu is giving the opening address at Steamboat's 13th Annual Freedom Conference. So be sure to register so you can hear him. So, Professor Yu, you've had quite a distinguished career as a lawyer and scholar, and there's so much we can cover today. Um, If you could start by sharing a few highlights from your time as a clerk for Justice Thomas, and um, if you could share any other role models you've had in your career. Oh, Christine, thanks very much for having me on your podcast. I'm really looking forward to rejoining my friends at the Steamboat Institute. I had a wonderful time a few years ago uh, there. And so let me get to your question. So some of the great things about uh, Justice Thomas. uh, First, I like that he's not a paper-driven guy. So I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who like things written down in memos and they want to read them. And there are people who like to discuss things orally. They like to be briefed uh, in person. They like to discuss things and figure out the issues by talking it out. And Justice Thomas, probably not surprisingly, is in the latter category. He loves to figure out the right answer to the tough, tough questions that the Supreme Court gets by sitting with his clerks. There are four of us every year, uh, just two years out of law school usually, and arguing and debating just like he's one of us to figure out what the right answer is. Um, He takes all comers, entertains all questions, and really likes to get in the thick of things. I think that's probably one of the most important things uh, to understand about him is how um, he's so eager to uh, discuss things from bankruptcy and tax cases, which I hope none of your listeners ever have to be involved with, to the larger questions like, what is the purpose of a constitution and the declaration? What's the purpose of the Declaration of Independence? And how do we understand our freedoms? How do we limit the powers of the government? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening would love to be a fly on the wall in in the the chambers of Justice Thomas. Um, And I'd encourage everyone to uh, read his book, uh, My Grandfather's Son. It it really um, details his his life and mentality and um, work on the court. Um, So speaking of the Supreme Court, um, a lot of people are starting to form opinions on the jurisprudence of the Trump appointments. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh's jurisprudence. And without getting too in the weeds, um, I'm especially curious if your opinion of Gorsuch's jurisprudence has changed with his decision in Boss Talk, which many say is inconsistent with the original meaning of Title VII's ban on sex discrimination and decidedly non-textual coming from Gorsuch. 
That's a good question. Uh, so first, to take up Justice Gorsuch, I, I was disappointed in his opinion in Bostock. I, I thought it was uh, quite wrong, quite erroneous, uh, in the sense that he it was seemed quite clear that at the time of the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, Title VII of that law bans, as you said, discrimination on the basis of race, race and sex, that they didn't have sexual orientation uh, in mind. It would not occur to them, actually, to have thought of sex as being something other than a male or a female. Um, so I, he adopted these kinds of uh, dynamic theories of interpretation, which most you would think most Trump justices and judges would be against. On the other hand, in the broad stream of his opinions, it's clear that Bostock is an outlier. In general, I think, particularly on the more important constitutional questions, he has generally voted, I think, in a way to support the text and structure and original meaning of the Constitution, and certainly far more, I think, than uh, the liberal justices on the court, uh, Justices uh, Breyer and Kagan and Sotomayor. And actually, I think he's done that more consistently than Chief Justice Roberts, uh, certainly. Uh, you see that in cases like the abortion cases. One of the big, big cases coming up this term that we'll talk about at the Steamboat Conference, I hope, is the pending abortion case that's going to be decided by the court, which could call on the court uh, to overrule Roe versus Wade. Uh, in the abortion case that the court has had over the last few years, Justice Gorsuch has adopted uh, an originalist approach uh, to interpreting the Constitution, unlike Chief Justice Roberts, who has voted with uh, the liberal justices, in fact, to uphold, uh, uphold the, right, uh, uh, the right to an abortion above what some people think are reasonable regulations. Uh, the other two justices... Christine, you asked some tough questions. So Amy Coney Barrett, too early to say, of course, she's barely, she was, hasn't even been on the court for a full term. And uh, I think it's very hard to predict how someone will do just how they vote the first year. Justice Kavanaugh is what's causing some conservatives angst. <laughs> um, <laughs> although I still think it's still early to tell too, um, but he has voted along with Chief Justice Roberts to try to moderate or blunt uh, what some conservatives were hoping would be a more uh, aggressive revolution and pushing back on the uh, liberal the liberal decisions of the court over the last 40 years. Uh, you can see Kavanaugh and Roberts have uh, joined together to try to, um, you know, how would you explain, try to just let make the conservative decisions less sweeping. And so you, I, I, I hope this does not continue, <laughs> but I think from the last few, you know, last two years, that's what we've seen uh, so far. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit about some uh, exciting uh, cases on the docket. Um, what, what would you say is the most consequent consequential case from this last term? Uh, there's a, a number of things to choose from, um, you know, although this term wasn't a huge blockbuster term. There were some very important cases. Uh, one, I think it would be great interest to people listening to the podcast was the Catholic Social, Social Services versus Philadelphia, which was a case about whether the city of Philadelphia, where I uh, actually grew up, um, which uh, means I've seen 
50 years of dysfunction in Philadelphia city government. Um, so Philadelphia tried to prohibit Catholic social services from working to adopt, to place adopted children, something they'd done for decades and decades without complaint. Because Catholic social services did not agree with the city of Philadelphia's views on gay marriage and gay rights. And so, uh, and this is a good example of the dynamic we were talking about before. Uh, This case gets up to the Supreme Court. Uh, The court could have said, anytime the city, state, or even federal government infringe on the right of a religious group, uh, it should be subjected to the most exacting scrutiny and generally is disfavored. But in this case, and, and that an earlier decision called Smith versus Employment Decision, which said, well, no, in fact, if a religious group has to comply uh, with, say, the drug laws or any other generally applicable law that doesn't target religion, uh, then it will generally be upheld. And so conservatives have wanted to overrule that decision for many, many years, even though it was written by Justice Scalia, of all people. So this case, this Philadelphia case, presented that opportunity. And what happened instead is that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joined with Thomas Alito and Gorsuch and Barrett to say the law is unconstitutional. But they said it on such narrow grounds, and they refused to overrule that Smith decision, which said, actually, religious groups have to comply with general laws, even if it infringes their right to a free exercise of religion. So it's a, it was a missed opportunity, but maybe extreme. And then the other, uh, one other important case I would point to that got a lot of attention where the voting law case, the voting law case out of Arizona, uh, Brnovich, which is the name of the attorney general. And in that case, now this was an interesting case. This is something that goes the other way. This is a case where the six conservatives, the three Trump justices, the three, uh, Bush justices joined together in a, a strong majority to say that a law that requires you to vote in your precinct, a law that forbids vote harvesting, was clearly constitutional. So if you were trying to, this goes to both, you're asking these are very good questions, Christine. If you were trying to you know, predict what's going to happen with these new Trump justices versus the other conservative justices, you see two different directions they could end up going uh, going in. And so conservatives, I think, had a lot to be happy at the end of the term with this uh, Brnovich, the Arizona voting rights case, because that showed that uh, you know, the conservative justices could work together uh, to uphold sensible state laws in the area of elections. Mm-hmm. And we, we could go down the rabbit hole and talk about some of the election cases, but um, we don't have enough time. So I'm going to instead ask, um, do you see the move to pack the court getting any serious traction um, and if so, what are your views with respect to whether that would destroy the independence of the judiciary? I, I think if the Democrats were to actually go ahead and try to expand the size of the court because they're unhappy with its decisions, that would be a terrible blow to judicial independence and the separation of powers, which is hardwired into our Constitution. The, uh, this has never really been done before. Uh, the number of justices has fluctuated from the beginning, but it's been nine justices since I think 1869. And you don't want to start off this cycle where each side just adds justices each time they're in power. Um, you need to have 
I think, a third branch that's sort of separated from that kind of partisan politics to call the, as Chief Justice Roberts said, call the balls and strikes fairly. Now, I actually think there's a deeper problem here, which is, as you know, uh, President Biden has appointed this commission to study whether to expand the Supreme Court. You've had attacks on the court by very prominent Democratic senators and members of the House who are calling not just on increasing the size of the court, but reducing the kinds of cases it can hear and investigating uh, the people who appear before the court and file briefs before the court and so on. The problem is that if you've got a chief justice like Chief Justice Roberts, who in the past has shown himself uh, sensitive to criticism from the political branches, from polit- to political criticism, pressure, uh, as he, as everyone knows he did when he upheld, was the fifth vote to uphold Obamacare back in 2012 and then in 2016. If you, uh, if you're Chief Justice Roberts, the people who are doing these things, who are making these attacks, who are threatening to pack the court, even if they don't succeed, they're all trying to just influence the justices to vote their way anyway. And they have, and which is also, which itself is uh, harms judicial independence, and which worked before. So I'll just point out that Franklin Roosevelt, in 1937 threatened to pack the court and law, a law, a bill was introduced in Congress. It never made it to the floor of the house or the Senate, but to forestall that bill, the justices on the court in 1937 switched their positions on the constitutionality of the new deal like that. And because of that, they opened the floodgates to this kind of unlimited federal government uh, using its taxing spending and regulatory powers to you know, intrude into the minutia of our everyday lives. And so if you're a progressive, you look back at 1937 and you say, well, let's try it again. It worked last time. And we didn't even have to pack the court because just the threat of it all was enough to pressure the justices to do what we wanted them to do. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But if you want to hear more from Professor Yu, um, consider registering for the Steamboat Institute Freedom Conference um, in August in beautiful Beaver Creek, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us on Liberty Chats today. Please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Thank you for listening to today's Liberty Chat. I'm Erica Anderson, the producer of the podcast. Our podcast editor is Fingers Malloy. My co-producers include Charlotte Whalen, Zachary Rogers, Lindsay Martin, and Christina Eastman, all members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, who represent the next generation of free market, free speech leadership. We hope you tune in again for our next Liberty Chat episode. Girl, you already know I wanna be I wanna be free I wanna be free I wanna be free, free. Yeah.